Good morning to you. Please turn with me to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 11. Uh, Today we arrive, hard to believe, but today we arrive at the end of uh, one big major section in which Paul explains theology. It began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 16. And it ends here in the 11th chapter, verse 32. So for these 11 chapters, uh, Paul really only has one thing on his mind, the uh, proclamation, the explanation of a series of theological points. You're going to notice that after verse 32, things change. Right at the end of chapter 11, we have a beautiful doxology. Paul worships a fitting way to conclude this major section. Theology is doxology. I never lose sight of that. And then you're going to notice a real difference, a huge difference when we get into chapter 12. Because Paul is no longer concerned with explaining doctrine, but with applying doctrine. And so he changes to the imperative. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. All the way through to the middle of chapter 15. So we come to the end, again, of this major section in which he has been explaining doctrine, the intricacies of theology. And then we're going to next week have this beautiful doxology, this transition point, if you like. And then, Lord willing, the Sunday after that, we get into his application of doctrine, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. But for today, unfinished business. The last few verses of chapter 11 follow along. As I begin reading in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. There you have it. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. I'm going to stick with my approach of last Sunday and the Sunday before. If you were here, I hope you recall it. A fourfold approach, one or two nods. That's all I'm looking for. A little reassurance. Thank you, Rosetta. Thank you very much. Your reward is in heaven. (laughs) Fourfold approach. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, just take out the worship guide. And on the inside of the worship guide, you'll see sermon notes, four points in bold print. That's been our approach. Fourfold approach last Sunday, Sunday before, and we're going to stick with it today. And so the first thing I want to do, I know it's a little repetitive, but it is extremely important, is just visit one last time the outline of chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so Melissa is going to bring up the slide behind me on the screen. There it is, real quick. 
This is all familiar now, right? We've been over this twice before. Here we go one more time for good measure. The key to understanding chapters 9, 10, and 11 resides in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, Paul brings to an end his tremendous celebration of the gospel by declaring in verse 38, I am sure, I am certain that there is nothing in the created order that can separate us, those who are Christians, those who are God's people, that can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. I'm sure. I'm sure. Here's why I'm sure. Because God foreknew me. God predestined me. God called me. God justified me. God glorified me. Therefore, I am sure. Wait a minute. There's a problem. The problem is the nation of Israel. It's a dilemma. He visits it three times in the ninth chapter, twice in the 11th chapter, verse 1, verse 11. The dilemma is this. Isn't the nation of Israel God's, aren't they God's people? Didn't God promise Abraham, I will be God to your descendants. They will be my people forever. Well, the vast majority of them are cut off. The vast majority of them are accursed. It looks to me from my vantage point, not the smartest guy walking the face of the earth, but it looks to me as though God's word has failed. It looks to me as though God has changed his mind. It looks to me as though God has not kept his promise. Well, if God did not keep his promise to the nation of Israel, then I really don't have anything to be sure about. I can say I am sure that there is nothing in the created order that can separate me from God's love in Christ Jesus. But uh, in reality, when I just look at the nation of Israel, I see that they've been separated. I see that the vast majority of them have been cut off. Well, the same thing could happen to me. Do we understand the dilemma? That's the dilemma. And that is the issue he is addressing in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we find the solution there in the ninth chapter. Again, in the 11th chapter, three explanations in which he's essentially saying the same thing. And here it is on the next slide, please, Melissa. Here it is in a nutshell. Paul defines Israel. There's the answer. There's the answer to the dilemma. If you're going to resolve this dilemma, if you're going to resolve this apparent problem concerning the nation of Israel, well, you really need to understand who or what Israel really is. That's all he does to solve this dilemma. And he makes it clear. There is a spiritually elect remnant within a physically ethnic nation. Just turn back for a moment. One last time for good measure to chapter 9, where he spells it out right at the outset of his thesis. His entire argument, he spells it out. Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. How many Israels are there? Say it. It'll be good for the soul. Say it. Two. There are two Israels. There is a spiritually elect remnant 
within a physically ethnic nation. He goes on, verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, physical descendants. What's his conclusion? Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh. Israel's a nation, ethnic nation. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Dilemma resolved. It's done. Just comprehend who Israel is and to whom God gave his covenant promises. So there is a spiritually elect remnant within a physically ethnic nation. This remnant, and here's the mystery, here's the wonder of wonders, this remnant is actually extended to include the elect from among the Gentiles. Therefore, the solution to the dilemma is that this remnant, not ethnic Israel as a whole, is the object of God's covenant promises. Therefore, back to verse 6, God's word hasn't failed. God has done exactly what he promised to do. Therefore, back into the 8th chapter, I am sure. I am sure that there is nothing in the created order that can separate me as one of God's people, as a Christian, from God's love for me in Christ Jesus. Oh, it is so important we understand the structure, what it is Paul is doing. Why? Because we must, oh please, I beg you, we must let Paul define his own terms. And we must let Paul establish his own goals. We have a nasty habit within evangelicalism. We have many. I'm just going to talk about one. Here we go. You know what it is? We have a nasty habit of opening our Bibles to a book, to a chapter, a verse, and then pontificating on it as if we have absolutely any idea what it is saying without comprehending the context, without setting it in the larger context of the chapter, the book, the Bible as a whole. We have this nasty habit, a terrible habit. We'll just open our Bibles, we'll read a verse, well, this means... Well, in actual fact, we may not jolly well have a clue what it means. We have to understand it in the greater context. That's why I've been hammering away at this outline. And follow Paul's thought flow. Always keep in view, what's he doing? Why are these chapters here? What is the pastoral concern that leads him into this discussion how does he approach it? In the midst of it then, we let him define his words. And we let him define his goals. Second thing we're going to do in our fourfold approach is come now to the third description of the remnant. You look at the sixth verse of chapter, uh, fifth verse of chapter 11. Paul says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Starting more or less in verse 11, he gives us three descriptions of this remnant. The first is found in verses 11 through 15. Been there, done that two Sundays ago. 
Second is found in verse 16 all the way through to the end of verse 24. It's an analogy, right? You remember the olive tree, branches being broken off and branches being grafted in. That was last Sunday. Now we come to the third description, verses 25 through 32. How I want to approach it is as follows. Paul does three things, all right? He just does three things. First thing he does is this. He explains or he declares a mystery. Verses 25, 26, 27. He declares a mystery. Are you with me? This is the first thing he does. He declares a mystery. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. That harkens back to verse 18. Do not be arrogant. All right? He's building on this theme. Do not be arrogant. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you. Now, why are we spending so much time on this? Let's just skip over and get into the 12th chapter. No, Paul thinks this is important. I want you to understand. This mystery, brothers. So he declares this mystery. Notice four things, all right? Four details. Detail number one. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Okay, nothing new there. We've heard that before. You go all the way back to verse 7. What then? Israel, the nation of Israel, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So there is a spiritually elect remnant within the physical ethnic nation of Israel. And so the elect obtained it. The rest were hardening, a partial hardening. So not the nation in its entirety. Lots of Jews were saved, but the majority of them, yes, hardened. He explains that in terms of the analogy. There is a wild, there, no, there, is, there is this olive tree and there are these rich nourishing roots that feed the tree. But most of the tree, most of the branches aren't really linked or connected to the nourishing root. They don't believe. And so the time comes where those natural branches are cut off. Unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Israelites. Some of the branches remain. That is what? That is the remnant, the believing remnant. The elect who obtained it, the rest were hardened. He simply repeats that now in verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, the nation, but there is a remnant within it. Second detail is this, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, we've seen that before as well. You go back to verse 11. So I ask, did they, that is the nation of the Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, right? God had a plan to it all. Through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. And Paul explained that as well in the analogy, didn't he? You have this olive tree connected to the, the nourishing roots, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenantal promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You have in that tree a remnant, branches that are truly fixed and feeding on that covenant. The rest, they're cut off. They're removed. A partial hardening of the nation of Israel. Then what does God do? Why did that happen? So that he would then graft in believing Gentiles, until there is a fullness of these Gentiles. Notice, the term until doesn't necessarily refer to a point of time after which something else is going to happen. It refers to a goal. It refers to a termination, a culmination point. Third detail I want you to notice brings us into verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The most controversial phrase in the entire chapter. One of the most controversial phrases in the entire book. 
I'm guessing I'm going to make very few people happy today. Here we go. All Israel will be saved. First thing I want you to notice is this, how he opens the verse in this way. He does not say, and then. He is not referring to a sequence of events. He is making a comparison. Isn't that obvious? He is making a comparison. And in this way, similarly, likewise, in such manner, in accordance with this pattern, in this way. He's not referring to a sequence or chronology of events. He is comparing two things in this way. He is not telling us when all Israel will be saved, but how all Israel will be saved. Isn't that evident from the text? And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so all Israel of verse 26 corresponds to the fullness of the Gentiles of verse 25. Here's what I submit to you. Here it is. The phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, refers to the full number of the elect from among the Gentiles throughout history. So too, the phrase, all Israel, refers to the full number of the elect from among the Jews throughout history. It is the full inclusion of which Paul spoke all the way back in verse 12. And so the distinction, the distinction between Israel and Israel in verses 25 and 26 is the same distinction Paul made all the way back in chapter 9, verse 6. These are bookends, folks. Go back again. Chapter 9, verse 6. What does he say? It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He has made a distinction. I think he has the same. I won't be dogmatic on this. But I believe he has the same distinction in view now in verses 25 and 26. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Yes, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's the nation. Lots of branches, natural branches broken off until it has a purpose that the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And understand this, in exactly the same way, in the same manner, all Israel, their full inclusion will also take place. And so he's describing something that is going to happen throughout the history of redemption. And then he backs it all up. The fourth detail I want you to notice with Scripture at the end of verse 26. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You're thinking to yourself, but Stephen, it's in the present tense. Yes, the present tense when Isaiah spoke it. Right? Paul's quoting the tense as it was written. But the fulfillment is Christ. The fulfillment is Christ's first advent. This covenant, I will take away their sins. Surely that's the new covenant. Surely that's the new covenant established in Christ's blood. Surely that's the new covenant that we celebrate as the church just last Lord's Day when we partook of the loaf and the cup and we celebrated together the Lord Jesus, his broken body and his shed blood. Surely that is the deliverer who has come. 
and by his work upon Calvary's cross has secured the salvation of his people from among the Jews and among the Gentiles. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is this. Yes, Paul declares a mystery. The second thing he does is as follows, verses 28 and 29. He affirms an absolute certainty. He affirms an absolute certainty. Look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they. Who are the they? Well, I think it has to be the all Israel that he's just mentioned back in verse 26, right? That, that remnant that will be saved of Jews throughout history. They are enemies of God for your sake, right? As regards the gospel. That while they're unbelievers, they're counted as enemies. Those who oppose Christ. Those who are enemies of God. But understand this, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, and their salvation is an absolute certainty. Why? Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The remnant will be saved. God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, will be saved. God will call his people. God will lead all his people safely home. Again, verse 29, for his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Third thing Paul does is this. He points to a present reality. And these verses are of such pivotal importance for me. The thing I want you to note is above all else in these verses, and I tried to emphasize it when I read it earlier, maybe you noticed it, is the word now. He uses the word three times. Listen again, verse 30. He points to a present reality. Just as you, Gentile believers, you know, the church at Rome, were at one time disobedient to God. You were on the outside looking in. But now have received mercy because of their disobedience, right? The gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. Now the comparison, verse 31. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Paul is not describing something that is going to happen in the future. He is describing something that was taking place in his own day. And I dare say he is describing something that has taken place throughout the history of the church where God's calling irrevocable. And he calls his people from among the Jews, from among the Gentiles, the full inclusion of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles into that olive tree. So he declares a mystery, he affirms an absolute certainty, and he points to a present reality. Melissa, can you bring up that third slide now? I've tried my best just to sum it all up. There it is, verses 25 through 32. As a matter of fact, chapter 11 in its entirety. First thing we need to grasp, there's a partial hardening. We got that much, right? You got the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, partial hardening, natural branches removed. We see it in at least three places, verse 7, verse 17, verse 25. Okay, what's left? There's a remnant left, the spiritually elect remnant. It's always been there within the nation of Israel. And we have that in verse 2, those whom God foreknew, his people whom he foreknew. Verse 5, verse 7, verse 17, these are natural branches that remain in the olive tree. 
Why are some of those natural branches removed? What's God's purpose? Well, Paul tells us there in verses 11 through 12, and again, verse 15, the salvation of his people from among the Gentiles. Believing Gentiles, those are the unnatural branches. Well, they're added. This is the fullness of the Gentiles of which he speaks in verse 25. And what's his purpose in adding these Gentiles? That he might actually, through their salvation, make even more of his people from among the Jews jealous, so that they too might be saved. And so even some of those natural branches are grafted back in to the olive tree. That's his purpose, as explained in verses 11, 12, and 15. And so believing Jews, natural branches, they're even added back in. And that's the full inclusion of verse 12, I believe, the all Israel of verse 25. And so what we have here is a description of God's salvation of his people, beginning in the, with the advent of Christ, continuing with the ministry of the Apostle Paul, right down through the ages to the present time, and it will continue until Christ's return. When Christ returns, guess what? The full inclusion of the Jews will have happened, and the fullness of the Gentiles will have occurred. God's calling is irrevocable. All his people will be saved. In other words, what? Think of Paul's thesis statement. God's word hasn't failed. Come on, get a grip. Hasn't failed. Therefore, what? Pastoral emphasis back into the eighth chapter? I am sure. I am sure that as someone who is foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, that there is absolutely nothing in the entire universe that can separate me from God's love in Christ Jesus. There you have it. He declares a mystery, affirms an absolute certainty, and points to a present reality. Leave that slide up just for a couple of minutes, Melissa, and then just take it away. We're done with the slides. I need to insert something here, and I hope this doesn't do more harm than good, but here it is nevertheless. There is a book floating around, which I penned about 10 years, penned maybe eight years ago, on Romans, right? Some of you have seen it. It's, uh, it's, ba it's basically a sermon series I preached on the book of Romans 10 years ago up in, up in Ontario. Uh, it's interesting. If you ever have, well, it wasn't the first thing I'd read, but Augustine wrote a book prior to his death. So we're back in the 5th century, early 5th century. He wrote a book called Retractions in which he doesn't actually retract anything. Well, what he does is he goes back in chronological order through all his literary works and he edits them all. He doesn't really retract anything, but he makes a number of refinements. Now, I could say this a lot better now than I said then. It's basically what he does in retractions. I'm no Augustine, certainly not. But I want to say this. That book on Romans, I'm happy with it for the most part. But in the first 10 chapters that we've covered now, I've made a number of refinements. And if God ever gives me the time, I might actually go back and insert those refinements. When I'm retired living in my cottage on Stony Lake, and on Central, it's never going to happen. I can never afford a cottage on Stony Lake, but we can always dream. There I am, and I have the time. I might actually go back and refine the first 10 chapters, because I actually think in many places, for myself anyway, I don't know about you, I think I've said things a little better in some places this time through than I did then. Refinements. When we come to the 11th chapter, it's a little different. I have a retraction. Because if you've read that book, recently, or maybe in the past, you'll know that in that chapter, I argue for what? That the all Israel there in verses 25 and 26 actually refers to a mass conversion 
of the nation in a day yet future. I don't lean that way anymore. As a matter of fact, I didn't lean that way two or three, about a year or two after that book went out in print, but there it was, nevertheless. Lord, forgive me. There it is. Um, but I, I, I've, I think, grown in my understanding of these chapters, what Paul is doing and how Paul himself defines his terms. Let me just say three things as to why I've shifted in the past seven or eight years. The first is this. My interpretation, as it's there in the book, harbored an assumption. Harbored an assumption. In logic, here's one of the key rules, one of the Ten Commandments of logic. You shall not argue that a premise is true simply because it's popular. You shall not argue that a premise is true simply because it is popular. In the circles I grew up in, I'm thankful for them, but in the circles I grew up in, the assumption was the all Israel will be saved referred to a mass conversion of the nation prior to the coming of Christ or maybe subsequent following the coming of Christ. They disagreed among themselves, among many things, but that was one of the points. That's all I had ever heard growing up. And the thought that this text could actually mean something other than what I had heard a thousand times never even entered into my mind. So my interpretation harbored an assumption. Second thing I, I, I want to note is this. My interpretation ignored, it ignored Paul's time references in the chapter. I completely ignored them. For example, verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. You look at what he says in verse 13. I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He's not talking about something future. He's talking about his own ministry. He's talking about what he hoped to see in his own day. That through the salvation of the Gentiles and the magnification of his ministry, he would drive some of his fellow countrymen to jealousy. So that God might continue to save that remnant within the nation of Israel. Third thing that accounts for my change, there are others, but this three most significant. The third thing is this. Uh, my interpretation then ignored Paul's central argument, which is a big no-no when it comes to hermeneutics. It completely ignored Paul's central argument. Paul, in these three chapters, proves God's word hasn't failed by proving that God's promises were never directed to the nation of Israel as a whole but to the remnant. For Paul to come full circle now at the end of chapter 11 and say, well, hold on a second. They are all going to be saved at some point so that God does keep his promise would be the height of inconsistency and would be an unbelievable contradiction, which cannot be. Even assuming for a minute Paul isn't inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was too clever to make that kind of a contradiction in his writing. And so those are three reasons why I've shifted a little bit there. I think my interpretation back then harbored an assumption. It ignored Paul's clear time references, and it ignored Paul's central argument. The third thing we want to do this morning, that's it, a description of the remnant. The third thing is consider what these verses teach concerning God. It leaps off the page at us. For example, verse 32, that God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. What is this mercy? 
What is the basis for this mercy? He's given it to us back in verses 26 and 27, where he quotes from the book of Isaiah, the deliverer. Who is that? The redeemer, the rescuer, it's the Lord Jesus, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, there's Jacob. That's a promise for the whole nation. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So to whom is the promise given? It is given to the spiritually elect remnant within the nationally ethnic nation. And this will be my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, a work accomplished at Christ's first advent, where he gave up himself on behalf of his people upon Calvary's cross, where he was condemned so that his people might be justified. He was bruised so that his people might be healed. He was forsaken that his people might be drawn close, near to the living God. Here we have the basis upon which God's mercy is dispensed, whereby he takes away the sins of his people. Oh, to take away sins is to cover sins. Psalm 85, 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. To forgive sins or to take away sins is to erase sins. I am he who blots out your transgressions. I am he who blots out, cleanses, wipes away, erases your transgressions. God himself speaking to his people. And he does so. Why? Because the deliverer has come. And the Deliverer has established a wonderful covenant. The promise of forgiveness of sins. The indwelling of the Spirit of God for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you know as well as I do, John's Gospel is just a miraculous thing. Get the book of Romans, get the book of John, you have the whole Bible. They open all of Scripture. John is tremendous. John 6, he records the Lord Jesus saying what? I am the bread that has come down out of heaven, right? Living bread. You hungry? Come to me. John 7, the Lord Jesus says what? I am rivers of living water. You thirsty? You come to me. John 8, he says what? I am the light of the world. You find yourself in darkness, come to me. Those three have an Old Testament reference point. What is it? Israel's Wilderness wandering, where God provided bread to satisfy their physical hunger. God miraculously provided water to satisfy their physical thirst. And he miraculously provided light. He himself, a manifestation of his glory, whereby he led them throughout their wilderness wanderings. Right? The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And he is the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths, which was based in large part upon those wilderness wanderings. Do we understand who the Lord Jesus is? And do we understand the Lord Jesus as he offers himself to us? If you are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Why? I will give you rest. Do we grasp? Do we see? Do we behold the mercy of God in 
Christ Jesus. Are you looking for forgiveness? Right? You've blown it. Dare I say, again. Again? Are you looking for forgiveness? And forgiveness will only be found in the Lord Jesus. Are you looking for love? Everyone else has let you down and disappointed you. The only love that's really a rock, unmovable, unshakable, is found in the Lord Jesus. It's a merciful love. Are you looking for peace in the midst of a storm, in the midst of such uncertainty and confusion? You will only find that peace in the Lord Jesus. Are you looking for comfort and assurance? You'll find it only in the Lord Jesus. Are you looking for joy? I mean, you're just miserable, sourpuss, just written all over your face. You're looking for joy, something that will really fill you, satisfy you. You will only find it in the Lord Jesus. Why? Because the starting point is the forgiveness of your sins. You got to deal with the problem. We, we, we dance around the problem. We'll get excited about so many things, all the while avoiding the central issue. We must Deal with our sins. It must be dealt with. And it can only be dealt with on this glorious fact, truth, reality, that the Deliverer has come. He has offered up himself willingly upon Calvary's cross. And the Father now dispenses mercy free and full to whomsoever comes and eats this bread, right? Drinks this water and follows this light unto the full satisfaction of their souls. Oh, God's mercy is in, in throughout this text. It is His mercy flowing from His mercy, the only cause, the only reason, the only motive why He calls His people to Himself out of the dungeon of sin into this glorious light. The fourth thing I want to do is this. As we wrap up our fourfold approach, how are we to respond? A reasonable response. Well, if you aren't a believer, how you should respond is obvious, right? Isn't it? hope it goes without saying. The commandment, there it is. Come unto me. There's the command. Your response is to obey. The obedience of faith. Your response is to confess your sin. Your response is to recognize that you have sinned in unbelievable, in unbelievable and imaginable ways against a glorious God. And your only reasonable response now is to beg forgiveness on one basis, one foundation, one rock alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. A reasonable response. Let me build on that and affirm a five-fold response. I'll be quick for the most part. Number one, these verses clarify how I view the nation of Israel, right? I'm thinking strictly of the mystery as Paul unfolds it here. These verses clarify how I'm to view the nation of Israel. Not these verses alone, but Ephesians 2, Scripture in its entirety. Here's how I view the nation of Israel, okay? It's a country, just like any other country. I've said it. That's how I view the nation of Israel. It is a country, just like any other country. Well, what about the theocratic kingdom? What about this theocratic kingdom that God is going to establish in that little territory east of the Mediterranean in a day yet future? I don't believe for one moment God's going to establish a theocratic kingdom in that little strip of land east of the Mediterranean. Even if, even if we believe, let's, let's just hypothetically speaking, even if I believe 
And even in Romans 11, I go this way in, in, that, in that book I wrote on Romans. Even if I believe that in a day yet future, God is going to save by grace en masse a huge number of Jews at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please understand this. Paul here says nothing about some sort of political or territorial salvation. It's salvation from sins. It's the application of the gospel. There's nothing geopolitical about it. It is salvation. Salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and being brought into the church. Now, having stated that, let me state this, lest anyone go away confused. I am pro-Israel, the country. I am, unashamedly and unapologetically so. I am pro-Israel. Here's why I'm pro-Israel. It's because it's a social democracy which shares many of the core values of democracies in the West. That's why. It's a social democracy in a sea of authoritarian regimes. Why wouldn't I be pro-Israel? People think like us, value like us, political system, economic system, social system, similar. We share common core values. So, of course, I'm pro-Israel and think we should be an ally uh, with Israel. It's a social democracy which shares the core values of democracies in the West. Let me build on that. I believe Israel has the right to exist in its land, the country, and it has the right to defend itself and protect itself. I believe it has a moral right, and I believe it has a political right. Now, did you get that? Oh, please, did you get that? A moral right and a political right. But I don't believe Israel has a biblical or covenantal right to its land. Israel has human rights, not divine rights. Israel is no different than Canada or the United States or Mexico or any other country. It's a country and has the moral, political rights to its land. But this idea is so pervasive within American evangelicalism that they have a divine right to the land is, in my estimation anyway, a misreading of Scripture. You know, it sheds light. Oh, I don't want to go down this road, but just a little bit, and I hope it does. I'm not biting off more than I can chew. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What are we to make of it as Christians? Hmm. Oh, let me say this. The idea so prevalent. Well, Israel can do no wrong. They're God's people. And God gave them the land. That is not helpful to the discussion. It is actually a gross misrepresentation of Scripture. We need to challenge the prevailing ignorance and insensitivity within American evangelicalism, much of which flows from an end times paradigm that has run amok. What do you mean it's run amok? Blood moon, that's how I know it's run amok. Come on. Now let me add something to that too. And let me, let me say, let me just say this. Because I, I need to speak pastoral, I need to speak as a friend. If, if perchance, you know, blood moon was something you really got into. I, I don't mean going out at night trying to take a picture and see it. I tried to do that, the clouds were in the way. I was disappointed. I'm not talking about that. If you got into the whole John Hagee thing and, and blood moon prophecy, okay, I'm saying this to you as a friend. You need to take a time out. 
You really do. You need to take a time out. You need to breathe deeply. And you need to reassess things. You really do. American evangelicalism really does need to reassess things. And this apocalyptic fever that just grips people based on the most unsubstantial things, reinforced by what I think is a complete misreading of Scripture, and so much of it as it focuses on the country, the nation of Israel, I think it's all misplaced, and then we apply it all to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. Here as Christians, you know as Christians how we approach the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Here's how we approach it. It's very simple. We want to see truth and we want to see justice, whichever side it's on. That is it. That is it. We want to see truth and we want to see justice. But this, again, prevailing mindset, well, Israel, they're, they're God's people. The God gave them that land. They can do no wrong. That, that is just unhelpful to the entire discussion, terribly misleading, and ultimately undermining what it is that must take place on both sides in terms of a coming clean and the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of justice. This text helps me a little bit. I hope that helps you. It's not something I particularly want to get, the road I want to go down or spend much time on, but I just... I don't know, I get burdened about it sometimes just because of how much time people give it, how much emphasis is placed on it, and just how ultimately in the final analysis, how unhelpful it is because we really should be spending our time and focusing on other things as Christians. Second response is this. It clarifies how I interpret the Old Testament promises, right? It clarifies how I interpret the Old Testament promises, yeah. What about the land? Didn't God promise them the land? What about the land? People ask. Listen to this. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham went to live in a land of promise. As in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation whose designer and builder is God. What was Abraham looking for? The guy who got this whole thing started. What was his hope, his expectation? It wasn't a little strip of land. He was looking for something God himself will build. He was looking for, dare I say, the road Paul points us down back in the 8th chapter. He was looking for a new heavens and a new earth. He was looking for something far greater than soil, just a little piece of land, soil. Even Abraham himself, by faith, was to see the, the full significance of this promise God had given to his people. Abraham looked to something God would build. He looked to the new heavens and the new earth as the fulfillment of God's promise. I can't remember who gave this illustration, but it's not mine. I want to give credit where it's due, but the name escapes me, but here it is. Imagine, early 1900s. Okay, are you with me? Early 1900s. A father promises his son a horse and buggy when he gets married. Years later, when the son gets married, his father gives him a car, which has since been invented and produced. Is the son disappointed with the car? 
Does the son insist? No, dad, you promised me a horse and buggy. <laughs> Give me a horse and buggy. Has the father fulfilled his promise? The essence of the father's promise is unchanged. The progress in technology has escalated the fulfillment of the promise in a way that the son never imagined. Likewise, in the Old Testament, God gave his promises in the terms and concepts familiar to the people in the day in which he first gave them. God carries out his promises. Oh, get this. Corresponding to the cosmic and redemptive impact of the fact that the Son of God has come into this world. God keeps his promises literally and faithfully in a far greater way than many of the original recipients ever comprehended or ever even imagined. What about the land? Well, yeah, you can have your horse and buggy. I'm sticking with the BMW fully loaded, right? <laughs> the eighth chapter is how we're to understand the land. All creation is waiting eagerly for what? The redemption of the sons of God, the glorification of their bodies, a coming resurrection. When what will happen? The entire cosmos will be renovated, the universe. We are heirs of the universe. The entire created order, a new heavens and a new earth. Why? Because of the cosmic and redemptive significance of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world, who through his death, burial, resurrection, inaugurated the new heavens and the new earth. All we're doing now is what? We're just waiting. Waiting for what? His return, the consummation of what he has already established. Oh, blessed are the meek. Why? They're going to get the whole earth. It's all going to be theirs. The entire created order. Oh, it clarifies how I interpret the Old Testament promises. Third response is this. It encouraged me to get up and preach the gospel. Why? Well, again, look at verse 32 at the end of chapter 11. That mention there of God's mercy beautiful. God has consigned all to disobedience, not the end of it, that he may have mercy on all. Who are the all? Well, you look at verse 12, he speaks of the full inclusion, full inclusion of his people from among the Jews. You look at verse 25, he speaks of the fullness of his people from among the Gentiles, full inclusion of the Jews, full inclusion of the Gentiles. God will save all his people. Hear this. The worldwide success of the gospel is guaranteed. That's why you go all the way back, if you can, in your mind's eye to chapter 1, when Paul just paints that dark picture of sin. And just man, just sinful degradation as a result of, of, of the fall. He prefaces it all with what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the only remedy for this mess. It's not going to be the next president's going to be. If your hope is in the next president, you too need to take a time out. Our hope is not in the next president. Our hope is in the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel and the transformation of hearts and minds, people being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit and really living like disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that's going to bring transformation to our community, society, and country. 
It is the going forth of the gospel, even in the midst of the darkest hour. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's God's power unleashed for salvation. So it encouraged me to get up and preach the gospel, live the gospel. The fourth response is this. It assures me that nothing can separate me from God's love in Christ Jesus. I hope you saw that one coming. Because that's Paul's chief point in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It goes all the way back to chapter 8, verse 38. I just have this full confidence. There's no nagging doubts or questions in my mind as I look at the nation of Israel. Because I realize now, clarity, yeah, God is doing exactly what he promised to do. And his calling, his promises are irrevocable. He is calling and saving all of his people. Nothing can separate me from God's love in Christ. And here's the fifth and final response. It urges me to worship. This is next Sunday. Worship is doxology. Because what does Paul say then in verse 33? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I'll say it again. Theology, rightly understood, is doxology. It will cause us to bend the knee. It will cause us to bend the heart and glorify this great God in heaven above for his incomparable excellencies as revealed in his plan of redemption. Our Father, we do worship this morning. We declare that there is nothing, no one like you in heaven above. And there is nothing or no one like you on the earth below. You are altogether incomparable in your power, your omnipotence, your might and strength. You are without equal in your wisdom and your knowledge and your discernment. And our Father, we too have tasted of the fact that you are incomparable when it comes to your love and your mercy and your grace as they are freely offered in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that every mind, every heart, every will might be bowed before you this day. We intercede on behalf of unbelievers, that they might bend the knee before their rightful King, the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging their sin, his claim upon them, and that they might come in poverty of the Spirit and humility and repentance, seeking forgiveness in him alone. And for your people, here, gathered, right now. We pray that our hearts might be stirred and warmed and encouraged as your word has been proclaimed, that truly you would grant us understanding and lives that are consistent with that understanding. We seek it in Christ's most matchless and worthy name. Amen.